I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. His legacy is one of defiance. He was somebody who openly challenged the Kremlin, challenged corrupt officials. He has done the most for the democratic processes in Russia. He made Putin squirm. Messages to everybody, don't stand up to Putin because this is what happens to you. What the world lost with the death of Alexei Navalny. That's coming up on Day 6. Today justice for Ukraine. It's really just a dozen people at the top. The ICC balks at charging Russia with aggression, but pressure builds for a solution. Learning to be funny. This is Gene. We're not home. Please leave a message at the tone. Actor Tom Rooney on the comedy legends who shaped his work. And readers rush to romanticy. How people view romance is changing. The new bestsellers blending romance, fantasy, and sex. All today on Day 6, the hot date with the dragon edition. On Friday, Russian authorities announced that opposition leader Alexei Navalny had died. Navalny was an anti-corruption campaigner and a fierce critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin. At the time of his death, he was imprisoned in a penal colony in the Arctic Circle, where he continued to challenge Putin even from behind bars. Russian prison officials say Navalny died after feeling unwell and losing consciousness. He was 47 years old and had spoken publicly the day before. Daniel Rohr made the Oscar-winning documentary Navalny. He first met Navalny in 2020, shortly after Navalny woke up from a coma, surviving a near-fatal poisoning. And he interviewed him just before he was jailed in Russia. Daniel, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thank you so much for having me. I want to begin by offering condolences to you because Alexei Navalny isn't just a political figure. For you, he's someone that you knew. You spent time with him when you were making your documentary. Can you tell me about what it meant for you when you saw the news about his death? How are you processing it? I was shocked. My wife woke me up at four in the morning. We have a newborn baby, so we're used to be jostled awake. But when she told me the news, um, I was I was shocked. And then I was surprised at how shocked I was for anyone who's followed the story of Alexei Navalny or who's seen the film for that matter. It's very clear that the possibility of his death, the possibility that the regime would finish the job they started in 2020 and, and murder him, it maybe shouldn't have been a surprise. But in spite of that reality, I, I still found myself in a state of disbelief. Uh, I was sad. I was angry. Um, it, it felt so, it's so upsetting. It's like, this can't be the end of his story. You, you know Navalny's family, his wife Yulia, and, and their kids were with you at the Oscar broadcast. Have you been in touch with her? Have you reached out to her? Um, I want to give Yulia a little bit of space. Um, I, I sent Dasha a very short note. It just said, I'm sorry, and I love you. Uh, I don't know what else there is to say. Um, it's, so, it's so upsetting. I mean, y y you know, it's like... He was such a wonderful, charismatic, 
you know, ray of light. He was one of these guys who could be tough and, and, and demanded a lot of his colleagues, but he was on a mission uh, and his sense of mission and purpose it sort of embodied every single thing he did, every decision he made, including the, the, the very bold decision to go back to Russia in the first place, which I think will be a decision yeah. that's litigated for the rest of history. Russian authorities say that Navalny lost consciousness and died after taking a walk on Friday. In the past, of course, Navalny was poisoned. And in, in December, he, he disappeared for several weeks before he was located in this Arctic prison. How likely do you think it is that Vladimir Putin is behind his death? A thousand percent. Uh, I bet I bet the farm on it. You know, I mean, it, it's kind of like a middle finger to the world, the way that Putin went about doing this. It was so brazen and bold and obvious. Navalny appeared yesterday. He was sort of skinny, but in good spirits. His humor was intact. He was cracking jokes. He was being an agitator and a shit disturber. And then all of a sudden we are to believe that he somehow collapsed. He was poisoned. He was murdered by this regime. And the brutal tyrant who ordered his murder, Vladimir Putin, will be held, held accountable in, in this life or the next. And the murder of Alexei Navalny only embodies just how nervous and frightened they are. It's not a coincidence that it's two or three weeks before the next Russian election. Um, Navalny has been advocating for folks to vote for anyone other than Putin. And for whatever reason, this is the moment they decided to murder him. Daniel, I want to play a clip from your documentary. Let's listen to this and then we'll talk. You might hate this, but I really want you to think about it. If you are killed, if this does happen, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people? Oh, come on, Daniel. No, no way. It's like you're making movie for the case of my death. I'm, I'm ready to answer your question, but please let me, let it be uh, another movie, movie number two. Like, let's make a thriller out of this movie, and in the case I would be killed, let's make a boring movie of memory. Alexei Navalny from Daniel Rohr's movie. Daniel Navalny had no illusions about the danger of opposing Putin. Where do you think he found his courage to, to go back to Russia and take that on? You know, some people are just built different. Navalny was an extraordinarily courageous guy. He was seemingly unafraid of this regime in spite of the repeated assassination attempts. And more than anything, he was motivated by his convictions. When we hear him talk to you in the film, he's doing this incredibly serious and dangerous thing. And yet he is using humor. He's joking around with you. Can, can you tell us how important was that as a weapon for him in terms of making himself accessible? Yeah, I think that that's... Potentially, Navalny's greatest genius was his weaponization of humor and jokes and, and lightheartedness in the face of such bleakness and darkness. Certainly, when it comes to the film itself, look, this is a film that I never should have directed. I had no business making this movie. I grew up in Toronto. I don't speak a word of Russian. I've never been to Russia. And ultimately, I think that the common language that Navalny and I could find to talk to one another was through humor and cracking jokes. You know, Navalny would... I take the piss out of me mercilessly and I would give it right back to him. Hmm. Um, and you know, one thing that I'm sad about among many other things is that the film used to be funny. I used to joke with people that the film was a comedy and Navalny's hilarious. I don't think the film's funny anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, that's part of the legacy of, of this tragedy and, and how it impacts what we created together. 
I watched a video earlier of mourners coming out in Moscow and, and leaving tributes to Navalny at a, at a memorial there. We are in a moment when, when Russia has invaded Ukraine and tensions with Russia and the West are at a peak. But what do you think his death means for the fight against authoritarianism in Russia? Well, it means the regime's frightened. They're scared. Uh, if they weren't worried about this guy, they wouldn't have murdered him. And I, I hope that his supporters in Russia will channel this anger and sadness into action. Navalny, more than anything, was for the preservation of democracy. In the context of Russia, that meant unseating this vile dictator and his regime. But around the world, democratic traditions are increasingly bumping up against the tide of authoritarianism. You know, I'm calling, talking to you right now from Los Angeles, where I've been living for the last year. And, you know, in this country, there are fact, political factions who seek to cozy up to Putin. Mm-hmm. We seek to under, undermine NATO and, and sort of the Western Democratic, Liberal Democratic Alliance. And it's the responsibility of every citizen to safeguard democracy and, and to understand just how fragile it is. I want to end this interview the same way that you end your documentary. So I'm going to play one more clip. Alexei, if you are arrested and thrown in prison or the unthinkable happens and you're killed, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people? Um, uh, my message for the uh, situation when I am killed is very simple, not give up. Do me a favor, answer this one in Russian. И здесь у меня просто очевидная вещь, ну не сдавайтесь. He is saying if they decided to kill me, then it means that we are incredibly strong. We need to utilize this power to not give up. How are you going to remember Alexei Navalny? Well, I think if Alexei Navalny were here, he'd roll his eyes at you and, and you know, he'd tell everyone to stop crying and to go pour a shot of vodka, take a couple shots and get back to work. There's a lot of work that we have to do right now as, as the world bends towards authoritarianism, both in Russia and abroad. And I'm personally going to try and channel the, the, the deep sadness and anger that I'm currently feeling um, into action. And I think that's what Navalny would want everyone to do. And, and I think that's what I want to remind people of. Don't be inactive. Daniel Rohr, thank you. Thank you, Brent. Daniel Rohr made the Oscar-winning documentary, Navalny. I have never had to deal with this level of snowfall or the weight of snow in Cape Breton. That's Sarah Roth on Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia. And if you know Cape Breton, you know that's quite a statement. People there are still digging out from two record-breaking snowstorms in two weeks. Sarah is a manager at the New Dawn Meals on Wheels in Sydney. And staff there, along with dozens of volunteers, prepare and deliver hot meals to hundreds of clients. They also deliver other essentials like groceries and medications. The record snowfall has slowed them down, but it hasn't stopped them. It's been a challenge for sure, um, but so, so rewarding. We asked Sarah Roth what the week has been like. So our service is for anybody that struggles to prepare meals for themselves, but primarily the majority of our clients are seniors and folks living with disabilities. There can be many reasons why folks struggle to prepare meals for themselves. Um, changes due to aging, mobility, 
disability or folks recovering from illness or injury. So one story that comes to mind is a longtime client, a longtime Niels client, and when we spoke to her through our wellness checks on Tuesday and Wednesday, we found that she was running low on her necessary um, grocery supplies and she was also going to be running low on prescriptions. And uh, when we spoke to the pharmacy, we found that the pharmacy was not going to be able to deliver medication. We were able to get one volunteer on the road and uh, this volunteer uh, picked up medications for the client, did some light grocery shopping with very specific items on the list and delivered those items to the client. Now their side road hadn't been plowed yet and so the client made it clear that her spouse would you know, walk down the snowy road to meet the volunteer at the end of the road so they wouldn't have to hike over the, the snow. Um, the volunteer was walking up the snowy road, you know, with two bags of groceries and medication and everything and handed it over to him and she was watching this through the window. And it was just so uplifting for her. And she was so thankful that someone would provide that service for her. So she was able to have her, you know, her necessary groceries, medication she needed for the weekend. And then we also were able to deliver her meals as well. When I talked to the client later that day, she really wanted me to communicate her thanks to the volunteer and I know that that volunteer will be in her prayers for life. Sarah Roth manages the New Dawn Meals on Wheels based in Sydney, Nova Scotia. Still to come on day six, fiction heats up with romanticy novels, hugely successful books in no small part because they're sexy. Inside Romanticy, coming up on day six. The Employment Standards Act needs to encompass gig workers. That's Erla Phillips speaking at a protest in downtown Toronto this week. Around the world, workers for apps like Uber and DoorDash went on a one-day strike on Valentine's Day calling for better working conditions and higher wages. This is a growing force around the world. The workforce, the labor force is changing, and it's an excuse for employers not to have a responsibility to their workers. Well, those workers need to be protected, and the existing laws do not protect us and do not cover us. In Canada, the number of people working for these apps has increased significantly in recent years. But because workers are classified as independent contractors and not employees, they're not given the same kinds of protections or minimum wage guarantees as others. Brees Sofer is a delivery person for Uber Eats and the vice president of Gig Workers United. Brees, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Yes, thanks for having me, Brent. When you're delivering food for Uber Eats, how much money can you expect to make in an hour? Uh, I can't expect any uh, types of uh, hourly earnings. So we're paid by the order. And as far as uh, how many orders we might get when we go out, uh, that's entirely up to supply and demand and, and how this algorithm that they employ allocates orders. So recently, for example, I've gone out uh, earlier this week. I worked two hours. I made $20 uh, in total. And, and that's in keeping with what other drivers have told CBC. They say they make less than $10 an hour. But Uber says in Toronto – Workers make a median of about $33 per engaged hour. Why is there such a discrepancy between those numbers? Well, I think the first thing to look at is that uh, terminology of engaged hours. 
So Uber, they're obsessed with uh, being able to decide what amount of time counts as actual work and what doesn't count as work. Mm -hmm. So by their definition, engaged time is when I have the food I'm delivering in my bag and I'm going to the person's uh, place who ordered it. So the time that it takes me to get to the restaurant, the time that I'm waiting, the time that it takes me to go from where I've dropped off the food back to a busy area, none of that time counts for them. On top of that, someone who drives a car, they have to pay for their gas, they have to pay for their insurance, they have to pay for the repairs. So the actual earnings per actual hours worked are significantly lower than what Uber is stating. You, you mentioned a, an algorithm that, that Uber employs to calculate how much you're going to be paid for a job. But when you accept a delivery order, how is your payment calculated? Can you see how much the customer is paying and how much of that is going to go to you? I don't see what the customer is paying. Uh, I see what Uber is offering me. They've made it their policy to hide how our base fare is calculated. So we're entirely in the dark. And on top of that, it can vary from person to person. So for example, if the algorithm calculates that I am more likely to accept a lower priced order, they'll send me a lower priced order. And then if they don't get me, they'll send it at a higher rate to someone else. Okay, so there's there's instability then, and there's there's a lot of doubt about how many gigs you'll actually be able to get in the course of a shift. But if there's that much insecurity about how much you'll get paid, why do people keep doing this? Why are more people joining this workforce? They're doing it out of desperation. They're doing it because wages have plummeted throughout Canada and cost of living have soared. Uh, on top of that, many of the people that do do this type of work are people that have been more traditionally marginalized. So you have a lot of newcomers to Canada. You have a lot of refugees. You have a lot of international students. You have a lot of people that have no other option, and this is the only work they can do. I myself chose to start doing this work because I wasn't making enough in my regular job, and I live in Toronto. I, I would actually like this job if I got paid a proper amount, but I don't. So I do it just because that little extra amount of money can make the difference between me you know, buying groceries or not buying groceries. Why aren't people who are driving for apps like Uber and DoorDash guaranteed the same employment protections as people working somewhere like a grocery store or in an office? How does that work? Well, that's a great question. That actually goes back to the fundamental innovation that these apps have made. They like to trumpet their technology, their logistics, uh, their algorithm. But really, the, the biggest innovation that they came up with was to call us independent contractors, was basically to misclassify workers as independent contractors. As an independent contractor, traditionally, that person would be able to say, okay, you want me to do this job? Well, it's going to take me this long. I need these tools, and it's going to cost you this much if you want me to complete it for you. Us, we have no leverage like that. It's not a back and forth. Uber basically says, this is the amount you're paid, and that's going to be it. As independent contractors as well, we get no access to any safety protections. It also means that they can get away with paying us less than minimum wage. Uh, you know, all the obligations that an employer would typically have, it allows them to skirt those obligations. Ontario and BC have introduced legislation to guarantee a minimum wage for app-based workers. Those rules are not being enforced yet, but how much of a difference do you think it will make if they are? I don't think it'll make any difference. I think it goes back to what you said earlier. You mentioned engaged time. Those minimum wage uh, rules are going to be based on whatever the apps calculate as engaged time. 
And those apps have all the power to manipulate that time as they see fit. So it, it basically offers absolutely no protections as far as uh, wages for workers. You've been part of this group, Gig Workers United, for a number of years now. Why is it so difficult to get protections in place for app-based workers, particularly as that workforce grows? Uh, <laughs> to put it bluntly, our political leaders are in the pocket of, of Uber. You know, we the Uber files came out a few years ago, and it was clear that in Toronto that John Tory had several meetings with Uber. Our provincial conservative government in Ontario is uh, very closely aligned with Uber. In fact, a lot of the legislation that they brought forward utilizes the same exact language that proposed uh, legislation from Uber has uh, has included. And so I think it's the, it's the nature of uh, our political system where where politicians and parties pay attention to their donors and those who have uh, financial power rather than little people, you know, and especially in the case of this workforce, marginalized people, people of color, people who tend not to, uh, you know, be big donors to their political campaigns. But this category of, of, of work is, get, is getting larger. And Statistics Canada found in 2023 the number of Canadians working for a ride-hailing app increased by nearly 50% from the previous year and nearly 20% for food delivery apps. So let's look at the big picture. What does this mean for, for the quality of work in Canada and, and for Canadian workers? I mean, it, it, it should be frightening to a lot of people that this is spreading because it, it's really a Trojan horse to uh, reduce labor standards for everyone. The, the more and more that spreads – the lower the bar gets. So we have more and more people that are working in for lower pay, more dangerous conditions, and that have less and less, uh, you know, ways to, uh, to protect themselves. And uh, I, I think it, it could mean, you know, a, a lower standard of living for, for, for Canadians in general, because as soon as you have an exception, then everyone is going to try to do that. Employers are not stupid. If they can pay people less and if they can pay less for safety, they're going to do it. There are a lot of people listening right now that will be using one of these apps this weekend to order food or, or, or to, to hail a ride. And they also want to do right by the worker. What's your advice to them? I would say treat them with respect and treat them with dignity. Uh, a lot of what happens with these apps is they kind of dehumanize people. And, uh, and they make the worker uh, into just this kind of abstraction. So I think being kind and being respectful, I think also tipping well, as much as tipping culture might be a problem. I will tell you from my own experience that we rely almost 50% on tips. So when you don't tip someone, you're actually seriously reducing the amount that they get paid. And, and the other thing you can do is uh, vote for political leaders that are pushing for an end to misclassification of gig workers and that are proposing to make them into the employees that they are. Brees Sofer, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Brees Sofer is a delivery person for Uber Eats and the vice president of Gig Workers United. I will be a romanticy girly until the day I die. These books are the books that are going to get you into fantasy and they are going to have you frothing at the mouth for mythological creatures. If you've spent any time in the TikTok sub-community book talk, you've probably heard the term romanticy. It is, as you might expect, 
a genre-blending mix of romance and fantasy, and it is topping bestseller lists and breaking sales records. On social media, Romanticy fans helped rocket authors like Sarah J. Moss and Rebecca Yaros to stardom. And novels like House of Flame and Shadow and Iron Flame are among the hottest-selling fantasy books ever. Nicola McNaughton is the co-owner of the romance bookstore Slow Burn Books in Calgary. We asked her about the rise of romanticy and what it says about the evolution of the romance novel. You're seeing the progression of our generation who love those YA books like The Hunger Games and Twilight and all those ones. And now we're growing up and we are older. So the material that we want is, you know, a bit more mature. And so that's where I think romanticy is seeing this, I wouldn't say a renaissance, because I think this is kind of a new world that we're in, that we are just growing up. And this is kind of where we're at now in our lives and what we want to see and read about. For myself, I love so many different subgenres within the romance genre and romanticy is definitely one of them but i do love you know i love my contemporary romance i love my dark romance i love my sports romance there are quite a few of us who kind of love it all and then there definitely are a few that just exclusively love just the romanticy it's that more the world building and the escapism into like these different realms which is really enticing to a lot of people it's usually female main character who is a strong heroine or someone who then eventually finds themselves and becomes a strong heroine and can fight for themselves. You have, you know, mystical, magical creatures. You got fae, sometimes monsters, sometimes vampires. So it can be kind of a, like a, an array. You have that guaranteed happily ever after. So you know that the author is going to put you through a lot, um, but at the end of the day, they're going to put you back together and make you whole again. So I think that's part of the enjoyment of it. This one is for all my romantic lovers out there. You've probably seen this book on Bookstagram, on BookTok, and for good reason, because this book is probably one of the most anticipated books coming out in 2024 when it comes to romanticy. The idea came to us actually a year ago um, in February of 2023, and I just called my sister up one day and I was like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we opened a romance bookstore together? And she was like, yes, I know the perfect place. I'm going to find out if we can lease it. And it just kind of, it all snowballed and became this amazing journey that we're on now. So that's how it came to be. It was very quick, fast paced. Even though our name is Slow Burn, there's nothing slow about it. <laughs> I think it was the second video that we posted and on TikTok. Just fortunately, it went viral and our fears shifted from overnight of, oh my gosh, I hope people know about the bookstore. I hope people come to the bookstore to, oh my goodness, I hope we can like, you know, make everyone happy and like have enough books. <laughs> and so it, it's been amazing, the community that has like that we've built on social media. And it's just fantastic to see how many people there are in uh, Calgary, Alberta, like, you know, in Canada that just love to read romance book talk and bookstagram it really can put books into like the stratosphere of you know getting in front of everyone you know you don't have to be traditionally published to get your book out there and to have people know about it so i think it's really made it a lot more you know democratized in the in the marketing of books so it's really exciting to see 
being on Book Talk has really influenced how I, I talk in real life. There's so many Book Talk terms that I use in my day to day life, especially when it comes to romanticy and just, you know, romance in general, but, you know, spice levels. So those types of things I have to often check myself because sometimes I'll just start going off in a tangent and I say so many terms that people just look at me and they're like, what are you saying? And I'm like, you just slowly get kind of indoctrinated into it and you just kind of pick up on it. How people view romance is changing. And I think that with the rise of uh, romance bookstores opening up and with the rise of book talk and bookstagram, it's just giving more space for people to be open and honest about the things that they love. And why shouldn't we like to talk about the things that we love? And so in particular, one of the things that I really enjoy uh, doing is talking to people in store and kind of breaking that stigma that, you know, we can't, like, we can talk about these books and we can have a lot of fun talking about these books. So when I read romance, uh, for me, I think uh, what a lot of people are, are craving is just that, just that escape and tuning out the world and just diving into a new world and just experiencing it. Nicola McNaughton is the co-owner of Slow Burn Books in Calgary. Still to come on day six, from Uncle Vanya to Henry Higgins, Tom Rooney on the secret to making audiences laugh. Uncover from CBC Podcasts is your source for exceptional storytelling and groundbreaking journalism. Unveil the shocking secrets of one of Canada's most prolific fashion moguls. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. And dive into the unsolved murders of two Canadian billionaires. This is a perfect storm of conspiracy theory. It's got all the ingredients, none of the answers. With new episodes released weekly, you'll hear the very best in award-winning true crime. Listen to Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We are on public radio stations across the United States. You can listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. And we're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. Ukraine says it has taken out a Russian warship in the Black Sea. This new video, just released by the Ukrainian military, shows a sea drone approaching the ship. And then we see the explosion you just saw there. This is the latest in a series of drone strikes against the Russian Navy in recent weeks. Fighting between Russia and Ukraine continued to rage this week in the air, on the ground, and at sea. Next Saturday marks two years since Russia invaded Ukraine, and two years since Ukraine began its efforts at the International Criminal Court to bring charges against Russia's leaders. Last year, the ICC issued arrest warrants against Vladimir Putin and Putin's Commissioner for Children's Rights after charging both for the abduction of Ukrainian children. But Ukraine's push to get the ICC to set up a special tribunal with the authority to try Russia's leadership for the crime of aggression has so far failed. Philippe Sands is trying to change that. He's the director of the Centre on International Courts and Tribunals at University College London. Philippe, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Wonderful to be with you again. So far, the ICC has charged Vladimir Putin and his Commissioner for Children's Rights for the abduction of Ukrainian children. Those are narrow and specific charges. You want them to do something much bigger. What is that? Well, when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine... 
I was approached by a British newspaper, the Financial Times, who asked me to write 700 words on Ukraine and international law. So I reflected on what to write about, and I settled on a gap in the international legal architecture, and that is the crime of aggression, waging an illegal war. There are in international law since 1945 and Nuremberg, and Canada was very involved in in that process, four international crimes. War crimes, basically targeting civilians during warfare. Crimes against humanity, targeting individuals. Genocide, targeting groups. And the crime of aggression, it used to be called um, crimes against peace. Manifestly illegal war. And the difficulty that we have today is that the International Criminal Court in The Hague has jurisdiction over the first three, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide, but it doesn't have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression. And for me, and for many observers, that is the principal crime in this current conflict, because if the war had not been waged illegally as it was, the other crimes would not have been committed. So that gap was what I focused on. And, and who does have jurisdiction? Is, is it the UN Security Council, where Russia is a member, with veto power? Is, is, that, is that where the jurisdiction lies? Well, at this point, no international court or tribunal has jurisdiction. There's a political jurisdiction at the United Nations, but we know that will get bogged down in the Security Council because Russia can exercise a veto. Mm-hmm. And so the, the gap was to be filled, on my proposal, by creating a special criminal tribunal for the crime of aggression in relation to Ukraine. And to be frank, when I wrote that article, I thought that the prospects of it ever happening were probably less than 0.01%. Mm-hmm. But somehow it touched a nerve. And I was contacted by a number of former leaders from around the world, former presidents and prime ministers, and the foreign minister of Ukraine. Uh, one thing led to another, and very soon countries were debating the various modalities for creating a special tribunal that would hold the Russian leadership to account for the crime of aggression. And let's talk again about the, the crime of aggression. Why is it so important and what could that lead to? Why, why would that prosecution matter? Because it is the surest, quickest and most direct way to get to the top table. You mentioned at the beginning the indictments at the International Criminal Court of Vladimir Putin for the crime of deporting children. Mm-hmm. That's obviously a significant crime. It's a war crime. It's not a crime against humanity or or the crime of aggression. The difficulty with war crimes and the leadership is you have to follow the trail of evidence and prove before a court of law, the International Criminal Court, that Mr. Putin was himself directly involved in that decision. And that is often a very time-consuming and difficult thing to prove. Mm -hmm. The attraction of the crime of aggression, it's a leadership crime. It's really just a dozen people at the top. And proving it is much more straightforward than proving a war crime. You've been critical of the ICC for other matters, though, and you've said that that one of the things blocking Ukraine's efforts there is a turf war. What do you mean by that? Who are the parties and what's involved? Oh, you know, I want to be very careful how how I put this because it's delicate. I'm a strong supporter of the idea of an international criminal court, but but there's a gap. And that gap is the crime of aggression. And everyone in the international criminal court, the prosecutor, the judges, know they don't have jurisdiction over that. It's become apparent to me that there is opposition to the idea of a special criminal tribunal for the crime of aggression within 
the International Criminal Court, some of the judges, uh, the prosecutor himself. Um, I've asked myself the question, what's that really about? Is it a principled position? And I've come to the conclusion that it's not. It's essentially about wanting to avoid, in their eyes, a competitor tribunal being created, which could somehow remove maybe funding or political support or something else from the International Criminal Court. I happen to think that's misguided. I think a special tribunal for the crime of aggression would have to work hand in hand with the International Criminal Court. Staff, for example, from the ICC could be seconded to a special tribunal. The special tribunal ought to be in The Hague. And so for me, it's about coherence and convergence, not conflict. But I think others have a different view on that. Earlier, you spoke about the respect that you have for the ICC. But if the ICC fails to be effective in, in the way that you think it should be, in, in, in its unwillingness to take on the crime of aggression, what does it tell us about the institutions that were forged in the middle of the last century with the goal of promoting international stability and their effectiveness in the complicated world that we're living in today? That's a really important question, Brent. Um, firstly, International criminal justice is a long game. I mean, this is uh, sort of an arc that has taken now approaching a century. Mm -hmm. uh, and secondly, it's very fragile. There are states out there that would like to see the architecture to which you referred torn down and done away with. I mean, Russia is not actively engaging with these institutions. China is not actively engaging. Even the United States, frankly, has a very mixed uh, relationship to it. On the one hand, it's taken steps to prevent U.S. nationals from being hauled before the International Criminal Court. On the other hand, it supports the ICC investigations of Russia. It's a real double standard. And of course, the uh, U.S. is not alone in having uh, a double standard. But there are three countries which are saying, look, in principle, yes, we want a special court uh, on the crime of aggression, but we don't want it to be a full international tribunal. And the concern of those countries, and I'm talking about France, the United Kingdom and the United States, is that if you create a special criminal tribunal for the crime of aggression for one permanent member of the Security Council today, you could do the same thing for another one. And I think what's hanging over, certainly the UK and the US, is the spectre, the ghost of Iraq. Mm. Um, it was a war which was, I think, in the eyes of many people, illegal, for some a crime of aggression. Um, and I suppose there is a residual fear that the next Iraq uh, could cause, uh, you know, Britain and the United States to be hauled up before some special tribunal. So it's, again, self-interest here rather than principle that is causing the breaks to be applied. This past December marked the 75th anniversary of the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights and of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide. Both of those were adopted within 24 hours of each other, and you wrote about that in December. Why was it important for you to remind people of that now? Something enormous happened in 1945 against the background of the horrors of the Second World War and the killing of Jews and Poles and Roma and so many other people. And that was that countries came together, many countries, Canada was amongst them, and basically said, look, we need to rethink our international order. We need to think the place of law in that order, and we need to impose limits on what states and kings and prime ministers and presidents can do. And we're going to call that international criminal law. And for the first time in human history at Nuremberg, the former leaders of a country were hauled before an international tribunal. It had never happened before mm -hmm. and held to account for their acts. And with that 
was born this fragile creature that we call international criminal law. And the Russia-Ukraine conflict is particularly important because it's happening on the very same territory where these events happened in the 1930s and the 1940s that caused countries to come together and say, no, we need to find a different way. What this moment, 75 years on, calls us to imagine is what would the world look like without those rules? the commemoration of the 75th anniversary was a way of reminding ourselves how vital was that generation that gave us that system. Philippe Sands, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Brent. Very happy to be with you again. Philippe Sands is the director of the Centre on International Courts and Tribunals at University College London. You've got your dishes of love, your dishes of heartache, you've got your comedy pie, you've got your lasagna of fury. You'll get it all and you'll leave feeling like you've actually experienced something and that you are filled with life. That's Canadian stage actor Tom Rooney describing the theatrical meal in Chekhov's Uncle Vanya. And he ought to know. In 2022, he played the title role in the Crows Theatre production of Uncle Vanya. It was widely acclaimed. Some said it was the best production of Uncle Vanya you'll ever see. And that's saying something, considering past performers include Laurence Olivier, Derek Jacoby, and Albert Finney. In January, this Vanya was remounted at Theatre Aquarius in Hamilton, and it's now on stage at the CAA Theatre in Toronto. Tom Rooney, who was born and trained in Saskatchewan, is still in the title role as Uncle Vanya. Some of you may know Tom from his many years with the Stratford Festival or as David Kay on the TV show This Is Wonderland. And this summer, he'll be at the Shaw Festival in the role of Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady. Tom Rooney, good morning. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brent. Happy to be here. So great to have you with us. Thank you very much. I want to start with the start of Uncle Vanya. Mm-hmm. Can you describe Vanya's entrance, his first entrance in the show? Yes. I, I come in off the top of the show after having had a mid-afternoon nap, and I come through a, a door, and the door is broken. So the entire door slams forward onto the ground, and it's quite a... Um, it's, I, I, I enjoy it because it's a real entrance, and it's a real... It kind of sums up what Vanya is, right? It's like nothing was working in his life. <laughs> Everything, <laughs> right. he fails off the, uh, you know, right from the very get-go. He can't even open a door and it, and it breaks and collapses. So, you know, his entrance is all about, this is me, this is Vanya, and this is my life. Nothing yeah. else, you know. And he rides that energy. Like He knows that, that it's <laughs> not working for him, and yet he just lays into everybody else for it he's so full of anger and energy and it's it's a delight to watch yeah i think he's run most of the time he's running away from his own shame and his own failure uh and he's he's constantly uh trying to blame other people and blame the world for what ultimately he knows is his own fault 
And in that, I mean, he's very, very human in, in, in that regard. Yeah, of course. If, and, and he has very little control over his ability to change that too, which is like, I guess, the, the tragic part of it. But it is so funny. And the play is a lot of things, as you say. It's a full theater meal. It's a tragedy, but it's also so funny. And it's in comedy in part because of, of Vanya's human condition. But what is it that you think makes it funny? What makes Vanya funny to you? I Unfortunately, I think a lot of Chekhov plays get you know a little bit of a bad reputation for nothing happening or for being boring, and I I just don't think that's the case. And I think Vanya is incredibly intelligent and very very witty and quick. And also, I think it's there's something kind of enjoyable to watch someone else's um, train wreck, you know. <laughs> uh, and and he's he uh, he and actually many of the other characters in the play are 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 in the middle of a train wreck. And there's something yeah. kind of enjoyable to sit back and watch. And it gets to, you know, hysterical heights as, as well. It, but it's also, what's so brilliant about it is that it's also incredibly sad and incredibly, incredibly tragic. But yeah, and, and incredibly has, human. Incredibly human. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you've you've now staged this train wreck, and I think I'm counting this properly, <laughs> in front of audiences in three different theaters. Yes. Do you find that the audiences are different? Do you take something different away from the audiences in each place where it's staged? Well, it's been interesting this time because the first time we staged it was at the Crows Theatre in Toronto, and it was in the round. Yeah. The, the action took place in the middle of the of the room, and there was an audience all around us, and it was quite small. So it was as if the audience was right in the room with us. They were mm -hmm. as if the audience was sitting in the walls watching this, this <laughs> yeah. take place, you know? And so... When we did it in the round, sometimes we were, you know, two feet, three feet away from audience members. So they could really mm. see our clothes. They could feel or even see our breathing. They could almost feel us, you know. So it was as if they were right there while this, as we say, train wreck was, was happening. Now that we're in a proscenium, I think the advantage to this is that they actually see it from from outside. So it's much more voyeuristic. And I think... They get to see the scope of the of the story uh, in a, in a, in in some ways in a, in a better and a more clearer way. That's what I've been told from people who have seen both versions of it. This is a weird question, but you spend a lot of time barefoot in this production. Do your feet ever get cold? <laughs> they don't ever get cold. Although when we were in Hamilton, they had put down the boards and some of the screws from underneath were starting to pop up. They were like little tiny screw oh, flo no. flowers that would every once in a while would pop up. And, and amazingly, I never went, I never hit any of them, or at least my, I never broke the skin. <laughs> every oh once in a God. while, I go, oh, there's one. And, you know, this, one of the stagehands would come in with his grinder and grind it off, and oh, thanks for the match. And then <laughs> and, you know, it's like, oh, there's another one. And they just kind of kept on coming up, like, like sharp little pointy dangerous flowers. <laughs> yeah, and, and just another indignity for Vanya to yeah, well, try and get through, right? That's a, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so th this is the story of a dysfunctional family, but let, let, tell me about your family. You were the youngest child in a large family. And, and are the cliches true? Did you have to perform to get noticed by, by the others in the family? Well, yes and no. I had the advantage that I was the only boy. So there were six mm. girls. And then suddenly this boy arrived. So okay. I, I, I was sort of special in that regard. Um, my family, my mother was a singer all her life. And there mm -hmm. was always, always music in our, in our family. Mm. Everybody sang, everybody piano and guitar. 
but who's the who's the funniest person in your family? Who did you because you seem to have such an affinity, an ability to play those words to their ultimate meaning? That's a good question. I don't. My father was funny. I mean, he liked the, he liked to joke. Uh, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of Danny Kaye. There was a lot of Bing yeah. Crosby. There was a lot of Bob, like all those old guys that uh, and he lo- and um, Victor Borga. You know those yeah. those types. Um, and I I loved them that's what my early introduction to comedy were, were those guys and uh i love the timing and the skill that was involved in the the type of humor that they they did oh yeah and precise and i think danny kid perfect pitch didn't he was yeah he was i wouldn't be surprised musician as well yes. um you played gene wilder in yeah. the gilda radner biopic it's always something what did that mean to you well, the funny thing is, I didn't really know a lot about Gene Wilder before. I mean, of course, I knew Gene Wilder, but I wasn't hadn't been a big fan. And then um, I started watching his movies, obviously, because I got cast in this this part. And he, again, a remarkable, remarkable comedian slash actor. He wasn't just a comedian. And I had a, I had an opportunity to talk to him actually. I, I, the producer set up uh, an, about an hour chat with Gene Wilder on the, over the phone, just talking about his time with uh, with Gilda. And he was so, so great and so fun. I, I called him and uh, he wasn't home. And he's, and so he had this strange little message on his voice, on his voice <laughs> machine. And it was just his, the voice, it picked up and, it, and there was a message from him saying, and it was a little song. It was like, this is Gene. We're not home. Please leave a message at the tone or something. It was something like that. Yeah. And it was, totally, it was like, oh, my God, this is Willy Wonka kind of situation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then uh, and then he called me back and I had I wasn't home for some reason, but he left a message on my phone. And all it was was Gene Wilder for Tom Rooney. And of course, I kept that for as long as I possibly could. You know. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> That's that is great. Yeah. Well, this summer you'll be playing Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady at the Shaw Festival. Yes. And that's based on Pygmalion, which yeah. was written 110 years ago. Yes. How does Henry hold up to today's audiences? Do you, do you think he's a chauvinist? <laughs> is he reprehensible? I mean, how do you how do you bring him to a contemporary audience? I mean, that is the question, isn't it? And then we're going to find out because he is, as you say, a terrible chauvinist he has absolutely no he's you know he's a confirmed bachelor he has no reason to have uh women in his life he's quite content to live his life by himself and with his pals and he says some things that are incredibly incredibly harsh and misogynistic Mm. you know um and yet he falls in love and love opens him up you know certainly to some extent and we'll find out how we do that and how much that actually occurs I think it's, I mean, I'm very interested in that, in that challenge because it's, he, you know, how do you make this person human? And yet, you know, he's still, hopefully I can still get people to understand him, you know? Hmm. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but there was a director who was a British director who said, people don't have to like the character, but they do have to understand the character. And so that's something that I'm going to be trying to trying to figure out. When it's your life and job to bring words to life, you must really love words. What do you read for fun? What do I read for fun? Uh, 
I just finished reading. Actually, I, during the pandemic, I started reading Proust, but maybe that's maybe I won't talk about that because that's a little <laughs> for fun. Well, I because I, I, I just yeah, I needed a I needed a project, so I just thought I started getting up in the morning and reading Proust, which is uh, again, which is incredibly funny. He's such a okay, a, incredibly funny witty writer. Um, I had to read it in the mornings because I couldn't read it at night because my brain just wouldn't couldn't take it. <laughs> but uh, I'm reading a, right now. I'm reading a book called Held, and it's by Anne Michaels, which I'm I'm loving. I mean, and and I'm loving the language. You know, it's there. It's so uh, language and writers are incredible. Good writing that they can write, put a series of words together in a sentence, not only to convey meaning, but it also affects you chemically somehow. And it sends mm. these, these, these chemicals through your brain that you're not only getting a meaning, but you're getting an entire feeling. It really is, I think, uh, some kind of uh, amazing magic, good writing. And I'm so, I'm, so, I'm so lucky, I'm so blessed to have the job that I have. <laughs> Well, it's so much fun to watch you do it. It's, it's just a pleasure. Thank you very much for being with us, Tom. Thanks, Brian. It was a pleasure. Tom Rooney is currently in the title role of Uncle Vanya, which is at the CAA Theater in Toronto until February 25th. Time, weather, and... Rift from the headlines. And here it is, Riff from the headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a Day 6 tote bag. Here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Smash Mouth and All-Star, Franz Ferdinand with Michael and Eminem with My Fault and Stacy Cleveland of Naramata, B.C. Correctly guessed the headline that we're looking for. Michael Buble jokes about microdosing magic mushrooms at the NHL All-Star Draft. Congratulations, Stacy! A Day 6 tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. Did you ever see a turkey, a turkey, turkey? Did you ever see a turkey playing a brass my trombone? And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Time, weather, and... Riff from the headlines.
And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, McKenna Hadley-Burke, Sarah Melton, and Pedro Sanchez. Our intern is Ashita Chopra. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. And I'm Brent Bambury. It's five days to the scheduled lunar landing of the Odysseus spacecraft, one day to the NBA All-Star Game, and seven days till we meet again on day six. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.